When I was going through our house, uh, getting ready to move a couple of months ago, I came across a very old, dusty recorder. Does it ring any bells for you? I wonder how many of you spent your youth, or perhaps your children's youth, with music lessons. Hours of practice, lots of money if you're paying for it as a parent. And um, how many of you now still play? Some, which is really good to hear. But an awful lot not. Ah, oh dear, I mean, all that effort, all that commitment, and all that promise. Now, for some of you, it may have been the case that uh, you didn't have the choice. You just had to stop because the money ran out, or you moved house, or pressures of time and family uh, meant you just couldn't do it. Some of you may have stopped because, well, you just got fed up with the fact that you didn't excel immediately or that you didn't pass the exams, or that you just were never quite as good as you hoped you'd be. And for whatever reason, your instrument, like my dusty old recorder, got left behind. So what was the point of all that? You know, I think it's even harder for young people today who want to give up, because they are immersed in a culture whose watchwords are Surface, instant, results. No wonder they don't always want to carry on with their music lessons or their dance or their tennis coaching or whatever beyond their school days. It may not look cool. It may just take too long. They might not make the grade. So where's the satisfaction? These words, these words of our culture today also mean it's really tough to be a Christian. Why? Because God's values are the reverse. The story we just had read from 1 Samuel 16 illustrates the values by which God operates. And his are the watchwords that we need to take to heart as his followers. So we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, and we've got to the point where the spotlight shifts to a new person. Scholars think that in about the year 1025 BC, 3,000 years ago, when the King Saul that uh, we heard about last week was by then 55 years old, something amazing happened to a young lad of about 14 years old. His name was David, and he was the eighth son of a farmer called Jesse. He was the youngest, the least significant member of the family, what the message translation rather kindly describes as the runt. And if you, like me, growing up were a youngest, you'll know what that feels like. But remember what Chris told us last week about how God is interested in the nobodies. Something amazing is about to happen. Once Saul had proved that he couldn't balance being Israel's king with also being obedient to God and subject to the law, Samuel the prophet was asked to anoint someone else to rule God's people. 
And meanwhile, we read the troubling words that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. Now, from this, should we be believing that God makes evil things happen? No. But the earliest Old Testament writers hadn't yet developed an understanding, a theology of the devil's role in spiritual warfare. And when the narrative of Samuel was rewritten 500 years later in the book of Chronicles, it actually, the the evil spirit was attributed to the devil. But the warning that we do need to heed is that Saul's torment is related to the consequences of him ignoring God's will and purpose for his life. But back to Samuel, on a mission from God. Directed by the Lord to go to Bethlehem and connect with Jesse, Samuel tries to choose the right man from Jesse's family to succeed Saul. And verse 6 tells us, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, who was Jesse's oldest, And thought, oh, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I've rejected him. See, Samuel looked and made a value judgment. He was impressed by the physical appearance and the height of Jesse's firstborn. In fact, the story of David is flanked by two amazing, uh, uh, very physically dominant men. Saul was a head higher than all his compatriots. And in the next chapter, chapter 17, we read about Goliath, who was nine and a half feet tall. In evolutionary terms, we'd call them amazing physical specimens, the naturally dominant leaders of the pack. Jesse's son, Eliab, was probably the David Gandhi of his community. What's not to like? More than ever before, our culture judges by surface appearance. Last week, there was a program in which Anne Robertson investigated Britain's obsession with body image. See, we live in a reflective world. Plate glass and mirrors keep bouncing back our appearance. WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook mean that carefully posed selfies can ricochet around the uh, internet for all to see. There's never been such an emphasis on how we look, as Anne discovered. Interviewing gym obsessives and enhancement addicts, both men and women, she finally asked why a person's appearance was so important. I quite understand how it's become so important. I think being from a city, there's even more pressure on you, especially like a fashion capital like Liverpool where models and media and fashion is such a big thing. It's all you're looking at is image and body image and you should look like this and you should look like that and it, it, it all gets on top of you subconsciously I think as well more than anything like you'll just look at them and think my lips need to be bigger you don't think why they need to be bigger and at the end of that program Anne reflected 
How sad. It wasn't making people happy. Our culture, and particularly the world that our teens inhabit, says that how you look is virtually the sum of who you are. Who will want to know you on the inside unless we're lovely on the outside? Dare we even reveal what we know to be our inner personalities that are not quite perfect? So that's our culture. And in the face of this, Christians have a hugely important message to share with our contemporaries. And it's contained in verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. The Lord looks at the heart. And it's reiterated in the gospel accounts of how Jesus reacted to people. And when uh, Paul says don't regard people from a worldly point of view, he's meaning not to be overly influenced by their outward impression. What is on the inside is far more important. It's that that we need to fuss about and cultivate, not our surface appeal. See, judging by appearances is really easy to do. And if it's not physical beauty, we might be looking for markers of status, the clothes people wear, the, the brands they own, the entourage that surrounds them. And we see it when Samuel turns up, doesn't, doesn't he, in... Um, the chapter, and the elders in Bethlehem just tremble because what they see is the status of Samuel. They're overawed. And because they don't look beyond that, they actually misjudge what she's about. But God is about depth, not surface. The entirety of our being matters to him, not just our outer covering. We're precious because he made us. Not because of the shape he made us. It doesn't mean our outward appearance doesn't matter. It does because it's got to do two things. It's got to reflect the love that God has got for us. And that's why we shouldn't ignore what we look like and we shouldn't denigrate what we look like. God loves us. And also... Our outward appearance reflects our spirit and our personality. We're unique, we're individual. So it's part of our character, but it's not more significant than what we say or what we, uh, how we think and those things that are springing from our heart. And time and again through the Bible, God chooses the ones who are overlooked by the world. The youngest, like David or Gideon, the stutterer, Moses, the picture in Isaiah of the suffering servant says he has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It's a person's heart or soul that's the essence of who they are, as opposed to the way they appear to the world. And yes, this passage makes clear that David clearly is a healthy specimen, but it's what God knows about his servant-heartedness is what counts. Our, our bodies fail us, don't they? Wrinkles and blemishes come. But we need to encourage those people around us who are trapped, like that girl on that clip, 
by culture's insistent peering at surfaces. It's the depths that matter. And they're so precious to him that he, he works within us so that what's on the inside is presented without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. So what else does this passage from Samuel tell us? It challenges our culture, which is a culture of the instant. I get frustrated when my computer takes more than a minute to boot up. A lot of us use contactless because a pin takes too long. Photos are shared within seconds of being taken. No more do we need to wait for that three weeks turnaround of pronto print. And according to our culture, what matters most is gratification now. And the internet feeds our need to be up to the minute. There's whole industries designed to make us anxious that we're not up to speed with what's trending, with what our friend's up to, with, with what's hot and what's not. Now, as a reaction, some of us are sticking our heels in, resistant to the speed at which everything seems to need to happen. My friends know I'm a bit of a Luddite with regard to having my mobile on. I'm more likely to respond in 24 hours than 24 minutes. Prince Charles famously doesn't use emails at all and just writes illegibly. Um, but even if we can cope with the insistent demands of technology in our daily lives, many of us don't want things to change too much at church, which is why Chris had to give out clipboards. We tend to prefer what we already know. But you know what? God challenges this attitude in Samuel head on at the start of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Because I've rejected him as king over Israel. Stop looking to the past. You see, God's plans move forwards, not backwards. Saul's wrong attitudes mean that God's dynamic purposes now need to be fulfilled through another channel. It's hard to let go of causes that we have given our time to. Sometimes, as Samuel was in verse 2, <clears throat> it's because we're anxious about the reaction of others or we don't want to hurt people's feelings. But God wants us to place his purposes above other considerations. You'll know from the info chain that recently the Embrace team have recognized that the season for our ministry in that particular format is passing and that we need to let it down so that we have space for what God wants to unfold in the future. And yes, God's initiatives might take us out of our comfort zone, away from the familiar. When Samuel was told to go to Bethlehem, that wasn't his normal circuit around Israel. Now, am I saying that God just inflicts change on us for change's sake? No, that would make him as much a slave to the instant as we are. What God is, 
is constant. His purposes are constant. And whilst he does move dynamically to seize the moment, he is in fact playing a long game. You know, the selection of young David wasn't accidental. It was planned. Even before he brought together David's great granny and granddad, Ruth and Boaz. So in this chapter, Samuel is being challenged to wake up to what God is already putting in place. Be on your way, he says in verse 1. I'm sending you. I've chosen. God has already gone ahead of his servant. And when Samuel raises objections, what about and God has answers ready. You see, our father does understand the predicaments that we face. And he will address them with us. But our anxiety mustn't become a barrier to stepping out for God. So think for a moment. Is there something that God is asking you to do which is different? Last week, Chris talked about the need to let go of the past. Is there something that you need to lay down so that you're available? Do we need to trust more wholeheartedly that God knows what he's doing? Remember, our perspective may have been warped by our culture. God sees the long game and he is constant in his purposes. So just let's take a moment for him to speak to us. One obstacle that our instant culture imposes on us is our expectation of speedy progress. Perhaps God has previously revealed the way forward to you, but then everything seems to have stalled. And when things don't happen according to our time scale, we wonder, well, did I get it wrong? It's helpful to realize that David probably had similar doubts. You know, there was a gap of 15 years between David being anointed as king and him actually becoming king of Israel. Imagine someone giving birth in 2001 and not actually naming their child until last year, this year. So yeah, David's been anointed, but meanwhile he has to quietly get on with his lowly shepherding duties, running errands for his big brothers, and wondering when his time would come. The Spirit of God has come upon him, but well, for what exactly? Has anything really happened? 
But remember that picture we had last week of the small magnets being attached to the ceiling which together could hold up a big object. Apparently, small changes can, over time, lead to big things. It's what the Olympic team calls marginal gains. And without David probably realizing it, God's spirit in that 15 years was transforming him. And when he's next mentioned in verse 18 of the chapter, he's become known as a brave man and a warrior who speaks well. And others can see that the Lord is with him. So David's story teaches us that we mustn't lose hope or feel that God isn't doing anything in our lives just because it's not instant. If we've offered ourselves as servants to the kingdom, then God will be using us. And that brings me to my last point. Today's culture is focused on results, on meeting attainment targets with a grade to prove it. I can think of countless teachers who are just depressed that they spend so much time ticking assessment boxes instead of educating. Acquaintances feel compelled to post photos of their giddy social life to prove that they've got one. You now need to seem to have, to have a degree just to do practical jobs. And without a certificate, how can we possibly measure up? And unfortunately, today's society tends to discard those who don't make the grade. Well, thank goodness, God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't accept or reject us according to what we attain, but values the person that we are and the experiences that we've gone through. Every part of our life is precious. You see, in God's economy, nothing is wasted. Our depth-penetrating God knows us intimately. Remember that, those words from Psalm 139? You have searched me, O God, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I stand. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. John told us about his American host last week who simply says, He sees. God knows exactly what we're like and have gone through. And when we give our lives to him, He's got a wonderful way of utilizing every bit of our life experience. I started by talking about music lessons we may have had in our youth. I wonder if David had the equivalent. I wonder whether he spent hours plucking away at the harp, toughening his fingers, working on scales, learning to span octaves. Perhaps people told him he was gifted. Perhaps his teacher would confident that he would go far. But as far as his family was concerned, he was the runt who had to run errands and do the stuff that they needed. When David was shoved out onto the hillside, taking care of dumb animals, I wonder if he ever felt angry. All that effort, all that talent, and nothing to show for it. Except, of course, 
It was the development of that musical skill that God used to prepare David for kingship. Just as Moses gained lessons in leadership from growing up in the Egyptian court, so the musical ability of this rural shepherd lad meant that he entered the king's service. And as his trusted armor bearer, which is a bit like being a personal bodyguard, he saw firsthand how monarchy worked. Vital experience for the future. Recently, I went and saw Charlotte Gompertz. Now, before she came to us, before she came to be trained, her job involved addressing mental health issues in prisons. When she accepted her current curacy, she had no idea that she would soon be involved in a new ministry where that experience is proving invaluable. But I think God knew. He wants to use every aspect of us in his kingdom. Nothing's wasted. Our culture judges according to results. But God values the rich complexity of every individual. He looks beyond the surface to the depths of our hearts. And his purposes are constant and loving, not instant and disposable. There are so many people living in Aldridge, people in our places of work, people at the school gates, people in the high street, who are trapped by the watchwords of today's culture. And they do affect us too as Christians. So, just to finish, I'd like you to ponder these questions and see what answers God inspires in you. How can we encourage the easily overlooked into taking up the ministry that God's preparing them for? How can we help set our non-Christian contemporaries free from the demands of instant surface results? We're called to show them God's countercultural watchwords. How can we do that this week? How ready are we to entrust our futures to the Lord? Free from culture's demands unbound from the past. As this slide stays on, let's pray.